0: This week, there were two kind of big economic number slash announcements that came out. The first was inflation. Inflation print was 8.2%. For listeners, you know, a general rule of thumb is the Fed largely tries to keep a 2% inflation number. So obviously, that's too high, which gives people uh, a sense of confidence that the Fed is going to continue to raise rates. In addition... Uh, Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of J.P. Morgan, you know, largely considered to be one of kind of the the best operators in uh, financial markets or the bulge bracket banks, said that he thinks we could see a recession in the next six to nine months, and he thinks markets could pull back another 20 to 30 percent if it's a bad recession. This recession narrative obviously is going to kind of be a consistent through line in the pod, as it should be. But maybe people don't think it should be, and Jesse, I'm looking at you because I feel like you think the recession narrative is overblown,
1: yeah, well, I think from an entrepreneur's perspective, if you're running a large company, you're running a bank, you're running caterpillar, your business is so large that it it sort of cannot not think about the macroeconomic situation i I don't think I think startups overly focus on it and again, like find it and use it as an excuse for why they can't close a deal, you know if you think about. HR software, it's a multi billion dollar market. If you're starting a two million dollar ARR company, getting to three million the next year, yeah, sure, people, your, your sales cycles will take longer. There will be impacts you have to solve for, but it shouldn't affect the way you grow your business if your idea is truly differentiated and you're actually doing kind of the hustly things that somebody does to start a company. So I don't, I don't, I'm not saying put your head in the sand around it, but I just think it's talked about. It's the amount of attention it gets versus what it should get from an entrepreneurial perspective is way overblown. Sophie, I what do mean, you think? I
2: mean, I think it's, yeah, I think it's really affecting founders' opportunities to raise money. I think bootstrap businesses are going to be affected by who their clients or customers are, depending on whether those are people whose businesses Or lives are recession proof. If there is such a thing, I have a lot of founders, you know, in my angel investment portfolio who are coming to me, whose investors are pulling out of bridge rounds, who are raising, you know, flat rounds or raising down rounds just to get money in the door. And they're asking for a lot of introductions. I think it's hard for their existing investors to want to continue to invest given their companies may be plateauing and. You know, there's a big emphasis on entrepreneurs and venture-backed companies focusing on profitability for the first time. That word never existed in the venture world, and now it's okay. Nobody even has that skill set or headset, these founders who have always raised money, and that's been their plan. Looking at their business now is going to be a completely different game plan.
1: They're, le- yeah, they're learning I mean, how to Jesse, run a real business. Is that, is that it? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I haven't had to do it for
1: the last five years. Oh
2: my Lord. I mean,
1: you guys both bootstrapped your businesses. Did you, did you have to think about your expenses and make sure your revenue was greater than those? Like, gosh. No, no, but I mean, we
0: we, we were also in a 10-year bull run, so it also was a nice time to be bootstrapping and building a business. I I mean, I agree with the fact that for certain companies that are startups, uh, no, the macroeconomic climate may not impact them as much because they're so small in kind of what is the pie of customers they're going after. But I mean, just even using Morning Brew as an example, we're a media business, we have advertising revenue. We have absolutely seen softness in advertisers over the last few months. And at at the end of the day, if your money is worth 8% less uh, in cash than it was a year ago, and you're now a consumer who your mortgage on your home costs significantly more, um, companies are cutting, maybe you lost your job, like you have to think at some point it's going to, if you have a B2C business, it's going to impact your ability to sell to consumers. So I think that who your customer is really matters. But I also think it's a mindset. I think um, it has been very easy to be complacent over the last few years because not to say it's ever easy to build a business, but I think it was easier than it is now. And so I actually think, you know, you talked about the bootstrap mentality or mindset last episode. I just think there's a mindset, a, uh, a, let's call it, a more critical mindset that this type of environment creates that for founders that haven't had it, uh, it's a good, uh, wake up call.
2: Yeah. And I, I, I think, there, I think you about can... your personal money, your personal cash, right. In this, I'm seeing a lot of people saying like, you know what, like I'm hoarding cash right now. I'm just putting it away. Winter's uh, coming. I'm hearing that from a lot of people.
1: I mean, when your cash next year, your cash will be worth 8% less. And if it even holds up for a few years, you're going to lose 70. 70- basically, if you keep a dollar, it'll be worth 70 cents in three or four years. So I, I mean, I'm basically plowing into the markets every month. I, is, I, is I it? put basically any excess cash I have into the, into the markets because productive assets. I mean, you know, if you read Buffett and all this stuff, productive assets, inflation is a benefit to them. Inflation actually is good for an operating company because they get to raise prices consistently, and, and manage against that. Not not true for every company, not true for every situation, but in general, productive assets or real estate usually benefit from these environments.
0: I, I have my right, money Jesse. in two things. I'm short, I'm short Kathy Wood's fund and I'm short uh Jim Kramer's uh recommendations on my own money, and that's it. No, I, I would say I have 80% of my money uh not in cash and the vast majority is in public equities. And I'm just thinking about keeping most of my money in public equities for the next 60 years. So I'm just trying not to look at my accounts right now. Um, okay, Let, let's hop into uh, into the show. Let's do this thing. Here's to the crazy ones, because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. What's up, everyone? I'm Alex Lieberman.
2: And I'm Sophia Amoruso.
0: Yo, this is Jesse Pugie. And this is The Crazy Ones what's up everyone welcome back to the crazy ones a show that is by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs i'm alex lieberman co-founder and executive chairman of morning brew and i, I am joined by my amazing co-host jesse Pujie and sophia amaruso here is the rundown of what we're going to be talking about today on the show we're going to be talking about spirit halloween the pop-up store that many of you see in your neighborhoods that occupy random strip malls uh, and closed retailers A company that brings in nearly 600 million dollars a year in basically a two-month span and we're going to talk about the lessons that builders can learn from spirit halloween's incredible business that has been around for the last 39 years then we're going to get sentimental and we're going to talk about each of our journeys as ceos of companies and what it looks like to evolve as a ceo over time and we are going to finish this thing up with a startup AMA where we answer listeners' most important questions about building businesses. So let's hop into this thing. Let's talk about Spirit Halloween. I, mean, it's uh, I need to Halloween. give a shout out. What
2: are you? What are you guys going to be for Halloween? I'm sorry. We have to start there.
0: Fine.
1: Fine. I'm going to be Tyler from the Zombies movies. Which you guys do not know because neither of you have kids, but it is all the rage on the Disney Disney Channel.
0: I, I'm uh, I'm a little bit jaded about uh, Halloween costumes because my dad used to dress me up in costumes that were basically like what he wanted to dress up as, and he never had the opportunity. So I was Groucho Marx one year, which I think is what a single-handedly got me bullied. I didn't even know who Groucho Marx was. Trunk fan who uh, gave me the idea for Talking About Spirit Halloween, he asked me, what am I going to be this year? And I decided I'm going to be Jeff Bezos before and after fame or making a shit ton of money. Half of my body will be a sweater vest with glasses and cargo shorts. The other half of my body is going to be a tank top with a muscle suit, uh, and then, uh, uh, aviators on. That's so creative.
2: <laughs> you guys have any great, great, like past, past Halloween's that you're proud of your costumes.
1: I was little John one year
2: with uh, no. my real hair.
1: I made <laughs> I do dreads with my you real bring hair. This up. Do you have the picture as little John. I just kept saying what? Okay. To every, the whole day. That's <laughs> all I is... said to anybody. It it turns out you can actually, you can make, you can have a lot of conversations
0: with people with those two words.
2: Sophia, what was yours? I was the Queen of Hearts once. I like really went for it. This was the last Halloween before COVID. Um, Drove all over town looking for stuff and...
0: Wait, is that that uh, you or is that just a picture of Queen of Hearts?
2: No, that's me. That's me in Halloween. It's Los Angeles. Red hair. are serious here.
1: Crazy blue eyeshadow.
2: yeah. Wow. For people who
1: are on listening
0: like a on a podcast, weekend. we have a we have a picture up right now of Sophia as the Queen of Hearts, but like <laughs> the makeup job is incredible. Like, do you have a professional makeup artist do this?
2: I did pay some. I paid someone, not uh, that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a big night. We were on like a party bus, went to a party, and like Kate Moss answered the door, and it was like, "Where am I?" And I think like. I don't know. Um, there was like a stripper pole on the, on the party bus. It was really fun. And then, um, Maroon five performed like just rage against M- the machine. Maroon five has a party every year in LA. It's just kind of, it's like a well-known party and got to see them play rage against yeah, the back machine, when uh, really Adam
0: fun. Levine had a, a better reputation. Okay. Let's talk spirit Halloween, by the way, have you guys like, do you have spirit Halloween's in your areas? Like are these stores you've seen before?
1: Yeah, yeah, I went to one recently. There was a Restoration Hardware. Used to be Restoration Hardware. No more Restoration Hardware. Now Spirit Halloween, and I didn't even realize where I was for a second. And then it's a yeah, it's legit. I but probably it's spent like, have
2: you guys seen the Atlanta. yeah the memes, the memes, the memes?
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, Spirit Halloween is known for memes, and we're going to talk about a few of those. Um, but I want to I want to quickly give the overview of the Spirit Halloween story because. Many of you who maybe you don't think you've seen the store, you probably have. There are 1,500 locations that pop up for a two- to three-month period, and you may just know it as like the Halloween store because they are ubiquitous. But here's the story. This guy, Joseph Marver, founded uh, Spirit Halloween. It actually used to be called Spirit Women's Discount Apparel. He founded a discount apparel business in 1983 in California, in San Francisco, and basically what happened was there was a neighboring costume store that did exceptionally well during Halloween, and when that store ended up shutting down after the season, Marver was like, wow, this business is crushing it. I I need to do the same thing, and so he pivoted his women's discounted retailer into costumes, And it just so happens that Spirit was in the old store's name, and it just worked well for Spirit Halloween. And so that first year when he transitioned, he made $100,000 in 30 days. And over the next 16 years, he built Spirit Halloween into 60-plus locations that were largely only open in August, September, and October he ended up having the business acquired in 1999 by Spencer's Gifts, the store that you know for just like ridiculous mm-hmm. gag gifts and trash, uh, trash. Trash, trash in malls. Yeah. And today, Spirit Halloween runs 1,400 pop-up stores. It's pr- the private, uh, so we don't know exactly how much they do in revenue, but in 2015, they estimated that it did 400 million in sales. And so assuming the costume market has grown as people have projected and you know projected costume spend was 3.3 billion in 2021, Spirit's revenue would be 528 million dollars. So this is a business that is open three months a year and does 528 million dollars in revenue approximately. I want to talk and pr- about... And probably
1: like 200 in EBITDA, by the way, if we just do the back of the envelope math.
0: You'd have to think so,
2: right? I mean, just and- one thing. Can we pull up that picture of him again? Because it seems really fitting because literally this guy's dressed like Freddy Krueger. Can, like, did you guys see? <laughs> like, did you guys see this? I, like,
0: it's so. It's, I, I did not see that I'm photo. Sorry. That is kind of creepy.
2: You've it's like hat. a Freddy Krueger in like an investor Patagonia vest or something like. What is he wearing? <laughs> He's wearing like a, yeah. I'm, sorry. I'm
0: sorry. So I, w- I want to talk about just like a few important lessons that any entrepreneur can learn from the Spirit Halloween uh, journey. I think the first is that Joseph Marver, even though uh, given the picture that, that uh, I unfortunately just had to see, seems like uh, quite an interesting human being. Unbelievable decision by him to transition from a women's discount apparel store to a seasonal Halloween store. And if you put yourself in the position of Joe Marver, like that has to be such a probably unpopular decision of a store that's open year-round to a store that's open for three months and focused on costumes. And you'd have to think it's so different than what his original intention was for getting into business.
2: You know, it's inv- and interesting to think about using, you know, in terms of the real estate model, excess inventory. Uh, that, you know, that's what they're doing. And there's incredible, like incredibly huge businesses like, you know, Uber, who are using excess inventory, which, you know, before there was an app to you know, get in the back of somebody's like stinky Prius and get driven around. That was opportunity for people to become entrepreneurs for Uber. To, Uber to build a huge business and to you know create something out of you know something that was just like driving around empty and for people to become entrepreneurs in their own right, just using an app.
0: Yeah, I think this notion of unused, underused, or kind of like quote unquote, ugly inventory has been proven time and time again to be a really ripe area for business. You know, you have on one side, I forgot the name, you guys may know the name of like, what's the ugly fruit business where they take basically all of the fruits or discriminate. Imperfect, produce. Discrimin- in, in,
1: and, imperfect in, produce and, and this produce. other one merged.
0: It's um, called dumpster diving
2: and I, and I did it and I should have monetized it.
0: <laughs> but no, yeah. Like the, the, you know, the discriminated fruits that someone basically turned into a business because they didn't hit fit the exact mold of what supermarkets needed uh, fruits to be like that business. I talked to an entrepreneur the other day, um, who has an incredible advertising business. It's called open fortune. And what he did is he, he's partnered with thousands Of Chinese restaurants uh, across the country. And he basically gets their fortune cookie uh, paper as advertising space for free. And he's doing tens of millions of dollars a year selling against the papers in fortune cookies across the country. And so this idea of unused, underused, or ugly inventory or excess space, I think is such a good uh, area for entrepreneurs to think of ideas. I
1: had a friend in high school whose family was in this big business and what they did was bought, bought stuff from grocery stores or other retailers who couldn't keep certain fruit on the shelves or certain things, you know, shampoo that they wanted to get rid of. They would buy it from them and like sell it to the dollar store or sell it to Aldi. And they just sat in the middle and made, it was a huge business. And that's literally, it just found those inefficiencies in the market and that stuff. I think those are like, those are great stories for anyone who wants to hustle.
0: How do you guys think, think- about seasonal businesses? Like, it, you know, at the end of the day, um, Spirit Halloween prints money, it appears, but is open three months a year. And so if you're hypothetically an investor looking at Spirit Halloween and you're like, how are they going to scale this business or like into, into a recession, what are they going to do in the fact that they're making 90% of their revenue in three months? How do you think about seasonality and how do you think about mitigating the risk of seasonality as a business?
2: I think it's lumpy. Go ahead, Sophia. I think it's, you tell us. It's t- yeah, it's tough to run a seasonable business. It's it's amazing because you really put your effort into a few months out of the year, and that's what I'm doing with business class. But at the same time, most of the revenue is driven in the spring and the fall, and their operating costs in the summer. They're not huge, um, but it's it's. What are the best, Sophia? What
1: are the best parts and the worst parts of the business class seasonality?
2: Hmm. I mean, I think the heavy promotion and the really, really condensed period of time where we're working and the amount of work that it takes to, you know, prepare for that, to execute on it, everything has to work like clockwork. There isn't as much room for mistakes because it's, you know, happening in a very finite time period. And then obviously the cash flow piece, you know, it's maybe business class could be a great evergreen business. It is an evergreen product. And I think what, you know, what relates to spirit is that, Yes, it's a seasonal business, but when you think about their inventory and like fashion, they're not, they probably don't have to put it on sale. They ha- probably have Elvis costumes from two years ago that are never going to yeah. go at a I don't know if that's, you know, the most, Elvis is cool. So it's like non-perishable inventory. It's actually, it's fruit that can't get bruised.
0: One other example is, you know, there's been so much consolidation in the the skiing business, like the the snow sports business. Vail Resorts um, is a publicly traded company now that owns hundreds of ski resorts. And I think the way that they mitigate seasonality is literally just by having more mountains. They are... Quite literally diversifying Mother Nature. So they don't have to worry about is it a bad season in Vermont versus in Colorado? But also, the ski seasons are different in different countries. Like it's different in South America versus Japan versus in Colorado. I want to talk about a part of Spirit's business, which is let's call it their licensing business. So a stat I read is that 60% of Spirit's Halloween costumes are recycled year over year. So it's the evergreen, you know, monster or zombie costume. But then 40% is the actual costumes related to characters from shows or movies um, that Spirit Halloween licenses. Sophia, talk a little bit about the licensing business and why it makes sense for them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at Nasty Yow, we had people coming to us. It was like the Marilyn Monroe estate, just trying to kind of capitalize on how can we, you know, monetize her image and likeness. In on a t shirt or on a keychain, you know, I think Playboy was the prime example of licensing gone awry where it was like every lighter and every keychain just everywhere in the world. And, you know, you can, you have to really keep an eye on your licenses or your licensees to make sure that they're not running away with your brand and your creative. And so, You know, they've one of the trendy, you know, I read trendy kind of costumes this year are Stranger Things characters. And that's something where Netflix went to spirit Halloweens and did a deal, which is just like super unsexy for Netflix. It's just kind of like how far downstream can you take your premium intellectual property? But guess what? They're here to make money much, you know, much further than people watching the show. Um, so there's, you know, there's 11 costumes and there's costumes for the guy that's like the metal head on the show and there's costumes for the, you know, the jock with the, you know, Hawkins high school thing. We
0: have, uh, we have talked about Halloween ad nauseum now, all very good conversation, but I want to shift it to something that is near and dear to all of us. And I think we've spoken, we've spoken about this and thought about this a lot, which is what does it mean? to CEO in a company? How does the role evolve over time? Um, And, you know, what has it been like for us to be in positions in CEO positions at various companies? So Jesse, I want to start with you. What does the CEO role mean to you? And how has that journey evolved for you over time?
1: Yeah, there's a a couple of things, kind of like touchstones for me when I think about being the CEO. The first one is, you know, Ben Horowitz has the hard thing about hard things, and I think he has, these are all articles and stuff, but one of the things I tell every CEO I work with and myself is he says the curve, like if you had had a, a test, the curve is a 22 out of 100. That's the average. So if you grade yourself on a 90 out of 100, like, you know, normally getting an A is 90 out of 100, and usually people who choose to be CEOs are people who like A's, you're immediately, you know, you're going to feel like you're failing every day, which you kind of are. And that's just, but once you baseline that as the role, then it's like, Oh, okay, this is a lot easier. I can, I can breathe. And you know, it's like, I always use the baseball analogy, right? Albert Pujols just finished up his big run and he's going to, I don't know, top 10 player ever. And he's 296 batting average means he's out of a thousand things. He's hit 296. Like he has not done well by the 90% standard, but he's crushed it for baseball standards. And I think, so I think shifting the standard is super, super important from the get go. So that's one big one for me. I think the other one that that I always talk about is like, especially for first time entrepreneurs, first time CEOs, which all of us were at one point pretty recently, we don't know how to do the job. And like, gosh, it's so liberating to say that just to go, I don't know. I don't know how to run a good meeting. I've never been in a board conversation And I think a lot of people try to kind of pretend like they know those things or expect themselves to know. I think they find themselves, you know, in trouble when they do that. It it stresses them out and creates a lot of that emotional challenge. And then the last thing I'll just say, and then we're curious how you guys are related to it, but like one of my favorite analogies for this is pretend we had four companies. Company A is five people and they're the CEO of that company. Company B is 45 people. And there's a CEO of that company. Company C is 150 people. And there's a CEO of that company. And company D is 1000 people. If I just described those as four separate companies and said, what do you think the CEO does? And is it different? And how do you think it's different? And what skills do they need to have? You'd be like, well, of course, you would never put the guy running the 1000 person company running the 50. That's insane. And yet every founder, every startup founder goes through that journey in speed, depending on how good the idea is how much funding that whatever right but all of us have been through at least three i think of those the three of us have been through three versions of that and holy shit it's very different at each stage and there's new skills and there's new challenges and and so yeah i mean that that's another for me that was like when someone said that to me once i was like oh you're totally right why do i think that the things i did when i was five are going to matter at all when i'm 45 like 45 people so those are are some of the ways i relate
0: to it you you were the ceo at those like at all four of those spots. Um, What did you like versus not like about the CEO role as it evolved? And how did that role change for you?
2: Yeah. It's really funny because I did not call myself the CEO of an eBay store, right? Like there's so many entrepreneurs out there. I see their Instagram bio and it's CEO at, and then there's like a tag for an Instagram account that literally has no product. It's like a holding page for <laughs> a business that they may or may not have. And I'm partially responsible for, you know, as I bootstrap nasty gal to a pretty big spot. And then it was really only until we raised fifty million dollars. That the press heard about me, there weren't a lot of women out there building businesses. This was pre-Glossier and pre-Away and pre-Outdoor Voices and pre-The Wing and pre-a lot of things. And so it catapulted me into this spotlight where I became this like kind of poster child of entrepreneurship. And I think the thir- since then the 30 under 30 or the Forbes, whatever, that's just like, if you get 30 under 30 in your Instagram bio, like you've made it, it's, you know, you can speak on panels and this generation is so like speaking on a panel is like as good as it gets. Like, they're just like, okay, what is the thing that can anoint me an entrepreneur, even if my business isn't, is, business isn't successful, you know, and, um, it's it's a real job when you have employees. It's not really. I don't know if you're a CEO. If you don't have employees, but go ahead, do what, say whatever you want. Don't be mean. Um, don't be mean, pro- Sophia.
1: Let people aspire. Let them aspire. It's okay.
2: You can aspire. Just call yourself like an entrepreneur, and then broadly, and then you have to have a business to be a CEO, right? Sure. Fake it till you make it. Okay. Um, there are different ways of going about this. Um, so I. Right. I never had any experience running a company. I'd never worked in an office. The only office I've still ever worked in, my name, has been on the lease of. Never, I didn't relate. I didn't know what people needed to be successful because I had never needed it and I had never been led in a real professional environment. And I showed up and I was like, okay, they... I do what I say I'm going to do. That's what you do on a job. And I hired all these C-level executives who I thought would come in and diagnose the business and then go do what needed to be done. They had I was 25 or 26. They were in their, I don't know how old they were. They were 50. Their careers were as long as my lifespan at that point. And I had no idea that I needed to hold these people who were making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year accountable. But as we know, and I'm not a scientist, but in quantum physics, something that is observed behaves differently than something is, is, that's not observed. And that goes for executives Ooh, as well.
1: I like that one. What were the three things you disliked most about being a 100-person CEO? 100 100% team uh,
2: being, CEO. Having visibility into 10% of what was happening in the company and being held responsible to 100% of it. A um managing timelines. Like I just, I had never, I, when I started my business, I had never made a spreadsheet. Uh, I was 22, didn't go to college. We'll maybe know this story. When index invested $50 million, they literally made a deck. I had never made a presentation and they were like, we want to invest so much in this company. They propped me up in the boardroom in front of all their partners and just said like, speak to this, which was totally naive on my part and really irresponsible on their part and ended up being a great ride. So Uh, I didn't like the learning curve that maybe not everybody has that I didn't know I was in for, which kind of goes back to what you said about Ben Horowitz. I can learn very quickly, but the learning curve to be a CEO, especially a CEO of a company that went from... You know, one to six and a half to twelve to twenty eight million dollars to over a hundred in a few years is steeper than my ability to learn. And again, I think I'm. I think I'm pretty quick Well you asked the three things? I don't know. I mean, uh, I think you said three. it's a lot. I've talked enough. Um.
0: Yeah. No. I think th- especially the first part about um only having visibility into ten percent of things, but being responsible for a hundred percent is a really like rude wake up call but it is that is part of the job and it's not to say that you like it or you don't like it there are people who love that aspect because that's how you scale but there are also people who hate that aspect because at the end of the day you're not going to be making decisions around everything in the business but you're going to end up having to be the person who takes responsibility for everything that doesn't go well. And then everyone else in the business is going to be the people who are given kind of the praise for things that do go well, or that's how, you know, largely people are, are told to manage in a business. I would say the transition, um, from call like phase one of CEO, which I I call builder in chief, to phase two of CEO, which is a, a delegator slash manager in chief, to phase three, which is a, let's call it a planner in chief, uh, was actually a very difficult transition for me, uh, like emotionally, physically. Uh, I distinctly remember when kind of this transition happened. Um, in up until. The middle of 2019, Morning Brew was still like a phase one business. And when I say phase one business, you know the, the best way I like to describe it is there's a great Y Combinator article um, about the jobs of CEO. And what the article says is a CEO's first job is to build a product users love, aka get to product market fit. And then the second job is to build a company to maximize the opportunity from that product that has product market fit. Everything till the middle of 2019 was that first job of getting a product market fit. And so largely the CEO's job is spent, let's call it like doing, working, wearing many hats. And so for me, that was, I was selling advertising partners in advertising in Morning Brew so we could make money and we didn't have to raise money. It was uh, creating content, like writing our newsletter or managing our writers. And then Austin, my co-founder, was focused on you know, growth, product, and tech. And I remember middle of 2019, we were probably at, I don't know, a dozen employees. And Austin hit me up one day being like, you know, you have to read this book. Um, one of our investors recommended me this book. And the investor, um, he's amazing. He was the founder of The Snuggie. Um, and he's just an amazing business operator. Uh, and the book that this investor had recommended to Austin is a book called Traction. It's traction by Geno Wickman. And it is basically an operating system for running a business. Said differently, what it allows you to do is take a business from thinking about things in terms of what needs to get done for today, tomorrow, and this week to thinking about how do we do things for the next three months, six months, year, up to 10 years. So what what I realized was I loved and was great at doing all the work to will a product into existence and prove to the world that people loved it. But when it, but when it came to planning, when it came to setting quarterly goals, when it came to hiring senior executives, when it came to allocating resources to the business, it was a really tough thing for me because I wanted so badly to be great at it And to love it because my mentors in business were all these people that Jesse just described before who took their business from idea to public company, still running the ship 20 years later. And I was like, if I don't have the capability or the interest in doing that, something's really wrong with me. And I would say Mm. largely my inability slash... Uh, lack of interest in doing those things is why I'm the executive chairman today and not the CEO. And I would say there were six months of moving from CEO to executive chairman that were called like the most self defeating, insecure moments of my professional career because I thought there was something wrong with me in making this transition. And so I just want to say to to folks out there that are listening to this, these are the the kind of the this is the the journey of a CEO. But also, you don't need to feel the obligation to be on board for every part of this journey. It's also why like hiring great operators is such a high leverage choice to make. And so that was my experience.
1: Yeah, that's great, man. Thanks for sharing.
0: I I anticipate we're going to be talking about just kind of the evolution of the role um, and things to like versus not like about it and the lessons we have um, for many episodes to come. But I want to uh, finish up today with uh, some Startup AMA, uh, a listener question specifically about um, pay and how to think about paying yourself as a founder? This is a question that I've gotten from portfolio companies so many times. It's something that I've given advice about, especially when portfolio companies are like, I pay myself $0. What are your guys' thoughts on uh, founder pay and how have you paid yourself over the years?
2: Do you guys want to see what paying yourself $0 looks like? I've got a yes. Screenshot yeah. of my uh, of the nasty gal Wells Fargo account from 2010. So this was, I guess, three years into my business. Again, I didn't understand that there was anything other than bootstrapping. You buy something, you sell it for more than you paid for it, and you don't spend all the money. That's it, right? And here, I, I mean, I don't know how old I am. I'm in my mid twenties. Yeah what what are like we nine, looking What are
0: we looking at in this screenshot?
2: This is my Wells Fargo bank account that combined both my personal, I have a business checking and savings account, I have a personal checking and savings account, and then I got a $2,500 credit limit, and I've saved literally a million dollars cash out of the back of an 87 Volvo. And uh, you can see in my personal bank account, there's $9,000, and in the business bank account, there's nine hundred thousand dollars so if you want to ask how much to pay yourself i can also show you the the place that i lived which was um five hundred dollars a month rent and i had a hot plate and uh my office was my kitchen and i washed my dishes in the bathroom sink i think i'm going to be there so
0: what was your first salary you paid yourself
2: I don't think I paid. I took distributions early on and not much. I'd not, I didn't have like, I had okay taste, but I didn't have expensive taste. I liked nice things, but that wasn't, I was so busy building the business. I think when you're building a business, you should be spending more time making money than you're spending money. And that was what I was doing. And I was super duper heads down. I also had the advantage of being 22, not having a lot of overhead, but at the same time, you know, and there are people who have higher overhead, but at the same time, often you have to step back to step, there it is, <laughs> yeah, it was not a storage unit. Um, you have to step back to-, to For listeners, we're,
0: we're looking at uh, yeah. Sophia's uh, $500 a month apartment uh, that is uh, filled with, I don't know what it's filled with, filled, <laughs> filled with a lot of shit.
1: It's gross uh, and disgusting. Joe's
2: O's, Joe's O's, <laughs> so Trader Joe's Cheerios looks like a toaster oven. There might be a scanner somewhere. And this is my full-length mirror. This is what I'm doing with Photo Booth and my um, camera. (laughs) It's
0: incredible. This is the content that we all come for. Sophia, (laughs) what is your advice though when founders ask you how much they should pay themselves?
2: I mean, pay yourself what you need, but don't pay yourself more than you should until your company is really taking off. I mean, don't you don't even have to pay yourself in the beginning. We have a lot of students in business class who have full time jobs until their business takes off. You really shouldn't quit your job until you're too busy to keep up with your business. Like that's it. And at that point, then maybe then you should probably stay, start paying yourself. But before that, you can't afford it, and you shouldn't be trying to.
0: Jesse, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I got One one last thing from the previous segment. I just want to hit on around being a CEO is I always tell CEOs. You are your company's ceiling, and so the more you invest in your own growth and learning, the better the company will perform. And I think when people look at it that way, they're more willing to invest in their own growth and learning. So that's just my my ending for yeah. that. I so uh, uh, our story: three guys. We each took whatever money we'd ever made in our lives, which was like thirty three grand each. We put it, uh, you know, one hundred k into the business. We each tolerated, I think, roughly up to one hundred grand across the three of us in debt on credit cards that were like. One day, if, if worst case, we'll figure out how to solve for this. So that was the investment uh, into Ampush. We paid ourselves zero for the first eighteen months, um, and basically said, "We don't. Why would we take any money right now?" So kind of similar to what Sophia said. We did. You know, we started I think paying ourselves thirty six thousand after eighteen months, and then a year later sixty thousand. But I will say, in the third year, the company made like three million bucks. We got close to selling it. We decided not to sell it, and then we did a huge distribution. Like each of us took seven hundred thousand dollars three years into the business, I bought a house in San Francisco, which is like, so there was, I mean, we, we moved fast to get to that place. Um, but I, in general, I think when you're bootstrapping, uh, you know, you pay yourself nothing or close to nothing. We moved in with our parents. I mean, we did, you know, we did all that stuff. So I think if you're young enough and you can do it, you do that. I think if you're, if you're venture funding it or even angel funding it, you know, I think, I think take 60 grand, like take a low salary, Um, but also like revisit your salary. Like one, I I don't think there's a reason to get overly dogmatic about it. Just like you're a person, there's a, there's a market for your role, you know, and, and every six months or year you should revisit it. Even if you have investors and and, and adjust it, how, how the business is performing, how you performed, uh, that, that's kind of my take on it. But I think, I think if you're raising money from other people, taking a moderate salary is a reasonable thing to do, uh, early on and, and people need to live in us, but it also depends your, again, your age and how, how far along you are in the you know personal journey and what your costs are.
0: Yeah.
2: Also, if you I don't mean, pay, if you don't pay yourself enough, it, when people look at your numbers, it inflates your profitability. So <clears throat> investors want you to pay yourself something that's appropriate because long-term your company, they, you know, you will pay yourself appropriately and your business is going to look a lot different when you do.
1: Yeah. Imagine yeah. being an investor. And the funny thing about the investors, is they look at your business, they add back in a salary for you, even if you don't pay it to yourself. So you don't even get credit for it. They're going to add it back in when they analyze your business, you might as well get some money paid to you. Right. I mean, it's, that's how they look at a business.
0: Yeah. I I'll also say how much you take in salary is largely, um, a function of your circumstance financially. And that's why I think it's also a very just like personal decision. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of people will, when they look at any of our stories, but let's talk specifically for a second about mine, they'll be like, oh my God, wow, you had, uh, you know, you took such risk. You job jumped from your job in finance to go work on this media company. And what I have to remind them is, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was some amount of risk, but I look at a lot of entrepreneurs who I think took so much more risk than me. And what I mean by that is, you know, I come from a a background where I grew up comfortably. I was able to quit my job in finance, and for, let's call it, 8 to 12 months, my mom covered my rent in New York City, so I didn't have to worry about the salary that I had to take to pay for rent. Obviously, that's my largest expense. And so I just think it's important to, to be honest about that, because everyone has different needs and circumstances, and that uh, obviously factors into how much risk you can take. So for us, when I left my job in September of 2016 at Morgan Stanley, I was making 85 k in that job. I went to making $0, again, because my rent was being covered, and then my other costs in life, I was just using my savings. The first salary that my co-founder Austin and I ended up taking was, let's call it six months into being full-time. Uh, it was a $60,000 salary. And then as the business started to make money from advertising and become profitable, we did some combination of increase in salary as well as distributions, like what Jesse spoke about. So I think it went from sixty to 75, to 100, to 150, and then, you know, as well into the six figures later in the business, Um, the way that I think about it is largely what an investor had said to me at some point, which is, an investor is investing in your business so that they can realize uh, a well above market return. They are taking, especially as an early stage business, a levered bet on you as a person, for you to do well as a person, you need kind of to stack the whole deck in your favor, which means you need to be entirely focused on building your company. You cannot be paying yourself in a way where you are fo- so financially insecure that you are thinking about your the cost of your life and not being able to pay for that cost of your life because it is distracting you from building your business. So, largely, like my rule of thumb is live in a way that is modest uh, and and comfortable and pay yourself exactly what you need to live in that comfortable and modest way uh in the beginning not more not less and over time as the business performs you can raise your salary but you should not pay yourself so little that money insecurity is literally preventing you from building a business in a successful way okay we're gonna put a pin in it there thank you all for listening to this episode of the crazy ones and uh it's time to step up your halloween game maybe go stop at a spirit halloween and uh Maybe uh, you can outdo uh, my Blue Man Group or the Queen of Spades or uh, Little John. So I hope everyone has a great Halloween and we'll catch you next episode.
2: See you Tuesday. Bye, guys. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business.